To me, the gold standard of information, of an idea, of a fact, if that's how you want to think of it, is something that's historically contextualized, something that's carefully considered, and something that is a recent personal experience. My son tells me that I'm a bad dad at when I don't give him ice cream, or when I tell him that he can't hit his baby sister. He's three. And I try to follow my own mother's advice of not letting anybody under six hurt my feelings, but sometimes I lose myself and, uh, you know, it stings a bit. He's got a lot of experience being told no, and he's thought a lot about ice cream. It's one of his main interests, but he doesn't have any context. He's three, so he doesn't understand the relationship between the food he eats and how he generally feels, how nutrients in food help him grow, how constant sugar can rot his teeth, or how starting the day at 7 a.m. with a sugar and carb bomb won't give him the energy he needs to make it through the morning without getting whiny. When I make a bad decision about what I eat, which I do a lot, It's because I'm accepting the consequences of my actions. I know I'll feel bad and my clothes won't fit as well and I'll have heartburn, but I'm choosing that one more slice of pizza and agreeing to pay for it later. My son doesn't understand that trade-off, so it's my job to get called bad dada and say no ice cream. See, it's obvious to him that ice cream is good and that I have ice cream and that I can give him ice cream. When I do give him ice cream, he is happy. When I don't, from his perspective, I'm acting irrationally because I'm just choosing, for some reason, not ice cream over ice cream. I'm choosing bad over good. My decision is irrational to him to the point that it borders on immoral. Adults understand the larger context because they have experience. We know about nutrition and sleep and tooth decay and self-control, so for us especially when we're learning new things. We have to be careful not to treat our shiny new information like my son treats ice cream. Maybe it's a favorite statistic or factoid or historical anecdote, but we get some piece of information and then we use that decontextualized fact as the hook on which we hang our proverbial hats. One thing that really pisses me off is when somebody says, quote, research shows, or quote, scientists say, or whenever some action is blamed on a nebulous they, as in, they don't want you asking about that. It's one, of, uh, it's one thing, you know, if we're having a, a casual conversation, but it's quite another if people are making bold claims about politics or the environment or social health or other important areas influenced by public opinion. There's something called the Sagan Standard, named for the late scientist and science popularizer Carl Sagan, and it's this extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, or ecri. Let's apply this rule, ecri, and sorry for the low-hanging fruit, but to flat earth theories. The claim that the earth is flat is extraordinary. Think about the number of people who would have to be involved in a cover-up of the shape of the planet, the thoroughness of their media campaign, the the dedication to the lie. How would you even recruit someone for that? It's an enormous claim, but but the evidence is uncredentialed non-scientists performing bad experiments without proper standards of measurement, relying on misunderstood and misapplied theories. It's so outlandish that the interesting thing isn't the bad science behind the claims. 
It's that so many people can become convinced that it's true. That's what's interesting. Is the claim extraordinary? Yes, extremely. Is the evidence also extraordinary? Hardly. But this does present us with a problem. If new decontextualized information is dangerous, and if going against the grain requires extreme evidence, doesn't that mean we should all just accept accept the status quo? A simple thought experiment, imagine going back in time 70 years, we'd all find ourselves surrounded by generally incorrect status quo. Racism and sexism are are obvious things that we know were wrong, but there's also things like leaded gas, lead pipes, and lead paint. There's just poison everywhere. There's no EPA. Rivers are on fire due to the pollution just being dumped straight into them. The status quo was terrible. When we think about large time jumps like that, It's easy to feel like progress happens due to a few windfall moments where the collective national conscience realizes it was wrong about something. But that's narrativizing history to fit the present perspective. In reality, it's countless bumps against the needle, and it usually moves imperceptibly, if at all. Those bumps are responsible research and academic and public discourse pushing us forward. Or perhaps it's better to say they're like sandpaper taking off rough edges. So, irrespective of our visual metaphor, how do we go about doing research responsibly if, as I'm hoping you'll accept, that's the way we make the world a better place, one tiny square millimeter at a time? It helps to have a hierarchy of sources to fall back on, and luckily we can crowdsource experts to help us find what is good. You can break these down, sorry for my child talking in the background, Uh, trust me, I'm more tired of it than you can possibly be, Um, and I love you, honey. You can break these uh, down in a lot of different ways, but I tend to group the quality of sources into five or six loose categories. There's lots of overlap, but I think you'll get the general idea. The lowest tier of authority to me is propaganda or yellow journalism. Think Russia Today reporting on the Ukrainian war, the Chinese government's position on Tiananmen Square, or the U.S. government's opinion on drone striking civilian wedding parties. As an aside, I'm not actually referring to a specific event when I refer to drone striking wedding parties because it's happened more than once. Think about sensationalist headlines like, Is so-and-so political leader abusing children? The evidence, of course, is no, and the article says no, but the point was to make an assertion with the question without opening yourself up to a lawsuit. It's trash information. Uh, one one step above that, we have advertisement. Think here, Coca-Cola advertising with, I'd like to give the world a Coke, while also buying up water rights and draining impoverished communities of resources, or Nestle giving out free baby formula in impoverished areas until mother's milk supply dries up, and then Nestle raises the price on formula, resulting in parents cutting the formula with extra water to make it last, which leads to malnourished kids at best and, you know, dead babies at worst. Good food, good life indeed, Nestle. Uh, Above advertisement, we have secondhand anecdotal experience. This is the my cousin Ed told me type information. It's a grab bag of good and bad. You know, sometimes you get a quick fix to a linky bathroom sink. Sometimes you get terrible dating advice and end up single again. You just have to use your judgment here. It doesn't really belong in the kind of research we're talking about. Next, though, we have more reputable news sources. You can still in these recognize an attempt at neutrality, though, of course, My position is that true neutrality is impossible. It's important to remember, now especially, 
that while the news is a service and sometimes even a public service, as with NPR or the BBC, we live in an information era where clicks, traffic, and engagement drive a huge portion of the economy. News that isn't read isn't profitable news, so all news agencies have a vested interest in maintaining your attention. The truth may be boring, but the news never is, and we should remember that. Slightly above that, for me, is encyclopedia entries. These are often treated as gospel truth, when in reality, they can be poorly curated because the breadth of information. Wikipedia is, in my opinion, actually the gold standard here, but there's a reason that it's generally prohibited to cite for academic papers. Ac uh, no, take it back. The gold standard is the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Wikipedia is good, too. I should also note that most people, most college professors, I guess that is, would probably rate news sources higher than Wikipedia, but I'm a grumpy old man who hates the 24-hour news cycle. Above these, we have academic journals. Um, there's, there's a lot more media that you can consume that's just this stuff, but this is kind of the stuff that I tend to see in papers, so it's what I'm bringing up. Academic journals are generally pretty good, but they aren't all created equal. Academics want to get published so they can get promoted and get tenure, so they need journals where they can do that, and this means that even in academia, you have to measure the competing interests of different groups who are trying to get you information. So how do you tell the good journals from the grifters? Well, once you know the general area of your question, like psychology or history or biology, you should do a quick Google search for the top journals in that field and the top scholars in that field. This gives you a general idea of where to look for widely accepted quality information that experts deem to be good. Next, use tools like the academic databases Galileo and JSTOR or Google's academic search service scholar.google.com to get results from those journals that you just found out about. You can see how often a paper has been cited on scholar.google.com, which is a useful metric for finding influential writings. For individual scholars, their influence is measured by something called the H-index. Generally speaking, higher H-index means, well, more popular, but oftentimes more authoritative. Here's a, a good sort of outline or heuristic for whether or not a paper is authoritative in its given area. One, is this paper published in a journal that is listed as one of the top journals in this field by two, an author who is a reputable author, three, on a topic that is within this author's area of expertise, and that four other experts in the field have found worth talking about and so themselves have cited it. If you've got those four things, then you've probably got a quality source. You can also do something called source mining, where once you find a really good article, then you can go look at its bibliography or works cited page or references page, and you can find the sources that this trusted author themselves trusted. So if you know there's somebody in a field that's really, really good, you can sort of bank on their knowledge to find more quality sources. The general idea is that because there is so much information and because nobody can be an expert in everything, we do our best research not by claiming to be an expert in every area, but by becoming an expert in other people's relative levels of expertise. We have to become experts in judging who the real expert is. And luckily, there are systems like we just talked about in place to help us do that. As a final way of talking about how we can evaluate authority, I want to bring up David Hume's Aesthetic and Moral Process from Of the Standard of Taste, an essay written in 1757 about the standards of taste. 
And as an example of what he's talking about, I don't want to bring up the extremely disappointing country fried steak I recently ate at Cracker Barrel. For Hume, a big part of the process of developing good taste is comparison and repetition. When you compare two similar things, the difference between them becomes clearer. By repeating this process, you become familiar with the typical characteristics of any given thing. That familiarity helps you know what to expect, to know what the aesthetic possibilities are, and then to place current thing being evaluated on a scale with other things. I recently ate a Cracker Barrel and ate what used to be my favorite thing there, the country fried steak. Now, in general, I love steak and fried food and things covered in gravy, so this really feels like a hard-to-mess-up food item, but I did not like it at all. It was a ground beef patty that had been battered and deep fried. It wasn't steak any more than you'd call a hamburger a steak burger. I mean, you know, some people do that, but it feels like a lie. The reason I used to love it, though, is because I was a dumb kid who hadn't eaten very many places. I remember thinking my grandma made great biscuits and gravy, but both of them came from a can. She actually was a fantastic cook, but the biscuits and gravy that I remember being so good weren't her from scratch handiwork. They were just a quick throw together thing for a six-year-old with a hollow leg. All that to say that I've eaten a lot more and cooked a lot more and thought a lot more about ingredients and how they all come together. So now when I go to Cracker Barrel and I order the country fried steak instead of the pancakes, I regret it because I'm comparing it with things that are much, much better, like the country fried steak at Breadwinners in Dallas, a city I otherwise don't care for, but man, country fried steak is good. As it is with country fried steak, so let it be with your research. The process of engaging with high-quality sources that make careful, limited claims based on rigorous experimentation, observation, or theorizing should help you look at your great aunt's Facebook post and say, hey, don't have to believe everything I read on the internet. <laughs>